My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... Another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, November 7th, 2012. We're going to be doing our light edition today. Yeah, apologize, schedule dictates such things. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said about God. And, well, if you've noticed that a lot of people who are Christians, who have a biblical worldview, are not thrilled with the... um, Well, well, the results of yesterday's presidential elections in the United States. In fact, when you look at some of the details, it's pretty clear that uh, Americans picked the candidate that they wanted. And what they want is, well, very contrary to, well, what it is that God would have us to want. And so we're not going to talk about that today, though, but I just want to let you know that, yeah, I'm aware of all of this, and uh, over the next few weeks we'll be discussing. In fact, I'm going to be on Amy Spreeman's uh, program in uh, Wisconsin tomorrow. Uh, I'll be on the phone with her uh, discussing this very topic, and so I'll post a link up to uh, that at the you know on Facebook and Twitter if you all want to hear it. But um, yeah, anyway, what we're going to do today, we're going to continue with our series regarding the gospel by uh, by Doctor uh, by Doctor Derek Thomas, um, and we've been working through a series of lectures that he presented. You know, you know, regarding the you know, gospel basics, like what is the gospel? Uh, last week we heard you know the the basics of the gospel pertaining to our need for the gospel. Well, today lecture number three, we're going to be listening to uh, uh, Doctor Derek Thomas explain to us how God's holiness, a holy God. Uh, gets you know really is an, is a critical aspect to understanding the basics of the gospel itself. So that's what we're going to do today. So without any further ado, here is Doctor Derek Thomas and Gospel Basics: A Holy God. Here we go. Lord our God, we come to you as needy as ever, coming to you for the Word of God to be opened to our hearts and souls and spirits, that you would speak words of grace and gospel and comfort and reassurance to burdened souls. Father, we thank you for the provision that you've given to us of the Scriptures. 
breathed out and profitable for doctrine and correction and instruction in the way of righteousness, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. So grant, Holy Spirit, that you would do your work of illuminating the words of Scripture, that we might read and learn and profit and do, and all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please be seated. Now turn with me in this uh, series, this summer series on uh, the gospel, and we've been calling it Getting the Gospel Right, and uh, we're looking at some uh, basic truths that we need to know and understand and have burned into our hearts. Tonight, I want us to consider uh, the doctrine of the holiness of God, because the gospel is shaped in every aspect of it by a consideration of the holiness of God. And there is really only one passage of Scripture that we could have turned to that speaks so eloquently and profoundly about the holiness of God, and that is Isaiah chapter 6. This is the Word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned up like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains. When it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. 
thus far God's holy and inerrant word. Now, in every possible and conceivable respect, the gospel is shaped by the contours of the character of God, of who he is and what he is like. And as uh, the prophet Isaiah speaks of God, he speaks of him actually on 25 occasions in the course of this prophecy as the Holy One of Israel. He implies the adjective holy on another 60 occasions. This is for Isaiah the chief characteristic, the chief attribute that stands out in his description of God. Now, as David Lawton was telling the children, uh, Sir Isaac Newton also um, engaged in an experiment in which he looked at a reflection of the sun in a mirror and looked at it for some considerable time. And for three days, he spent his time in almost absolute darkness, trying to recover uh, from uh, the effect of the glare of the sun upon his retina, had he conducted that experiment for a further period of time, he no doubt would have become blind. Well, Isaiah here has been staring, and perhaps perhaps not initially out of a desire to do so, but he has been staring at the holiness of God, and that holiness of God has made a deep impress um, upon him. Now, there are a couple of considerations before we look at the prophecy in any detail this evening. There are a couple of considerations. First of all, the year in which this took place. And we're told in the opening verse of chapter 6 that it is the year in which King Uzziah died. This is a, a significant moment in the history of Israel. Isaiah is a, a southerner, if you like. You can perhaps empathize with him. He is in Jerusalem. He has access to the kings of uh, the southern kingdom of Judah. But up in the north in particular, uh, Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, Israel is now being attacked and being, uh, being uh, ravaged indeed on its borders and being threatened in terms of its capital city by um, the invasion of the great empire of um, Assyria. And you know your Old Testament history well enough to know that eventually uh, the northern kingdom uh, of Israel will indeed collapse to the might and power and militaristic might and power of the ancient kingdom of Assyria. Judgment is coming upon the people of God. It will eventually come right down to Jerusalem and to uh, the region that we sometimes call Judah, and that will take place in another century or so. But Isaiah is giving warning, warning to the people of God, and especially to the northern tribes of the people of God, of the judgment of God that is coming upon them, a judgment because they have forsaken the gospel, a judgment because they have forgotten what it is to worship the true and living God. In the south, God has raised up a, a great king, King Uzziah. He was a teenager when he first accessed the throne. He had been on the throne for half a century, almost as long as the Queen of England, I think, has been on the throne in uh, Great Britain. And then towards the end of his life, King Uzziah, perhaps, perhaps with, with the 
the arrogance that comes uh, with uh, age sometimes uh, usurped the office uh, of the high priest and did something that a king could not do in the temple and that was offer incense uh, in uh, the temple, an act that only the high priest could perform. And God had judged him. God had, had smitten him with leprosy and for the rest of his life, his, his uh, retirement life indeed, uh, he was devoid of access to the temple of God. He was devoid of fellowship with the people of God. He would have lived a lonesome life in a leper colony somewhere outside of the city. His family perhaps only being allowed to come and visit at a distance, but not coming within close proximity of him. And now this king has died, the earthly king, a king who had been in many respects a reforming king, in many respects a great king, but who in his latter years had failed and, and failed in a, in a very miserable way. And perhaps Isaiah, who would have had access to this king as a, as a counselor indeed to this king, and perhaps had spoken in the presence of this king on many an occasion. And perhaps, perhaps now not only is the year significant, but perhaps also the location, because it's in that temple and perhaps even at the very spot on which the earthly king had stood that Isaiah the prophet now finds himself. And you can imagine perhaps that Isaiah was thinking of what had occurred and perhaps what the consequences might be for the future of, of Israel, for the future of the people of God when all of a sudden something extraordinary happens, extraordinary even in terms of the measurement of things that occurred to the ancient prophets of the Old Testament. He saw a vision of the glory and grandeur and in particular the holiness of Almighty God. The earthly king was dead, but the king of kings was very much alive. And it's as though Isaiah's heart and soul is being drawn away from the concern of earthly things to, to view the one who has authority and the one who has control and the one who is in charge of all things. He's contemplating perhaps the sin of his earthly king. But what he sees is the sinlessness, the unimaginable, the the. the, the the intimidatingness of the sinlessness of the king of kings. And there's something of an enormous contrast here between the king who has just died and the king of kings that now appears to uh, Uzziah, uh, that appears to Isaiah, this, uh, this, this extraordinary vision. Now, perhaps we should wait until the end to make this clear, but it seems to me that we need to make it absolutely clear at the very beginning, because the New Testament interprets this passage for us. John, in his uh, gospel, in the 10th chapter of his gospel, makes a, a passing comment about the vision that Isaiah saw in chapter 6, and he makes the comment that the one whom Isaiah saw in the temple was none other than Christ himself. This is an Old Testament vision. This is an Old Testament disclosure. This is an Old Testament revelation of, of Jesus. And, and 
however we view Jesus, however we think of him, and there are some who think of him as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, who loves to pat little children on their heads. And, and I'm sure Jesus did love to pat little children on their heads. I think he was very fond of children, for of such is the kingdom of God, he said. But he is also this, this intimidating, holy, holy, holy God who appears to Isaiah in the temple. And I want us to think through this passage in terms of three particular things that God reveals to Isaiah in this vision. And and the first, of course, is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. The Old Testament word holy, the seraphim, who sing holy, holy, holy Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth is full of your glory. The Old Testament word for holy can mean two things. First of all, it can mean the idea of separation, the idea of of geography, the idea of distance. God is, is separated from. God is at a distance from us. The vision itself, as Isaiah begins to describe this vision, it, it comes to him as a, as a kind of audio-visual display. It has a spatial connotation. He sees the Lord high and lifted up. This is not a this is not a vision of a, of, a, of a friend who draws near, first of all. It's a vision of, of one who is, who is high and, and lifted up and, and sovereign. This is, a, this is a description of one who spatially, geographically is somewhat removed from the prophet. And you've, you've almost got to imagine the prophet having to, having to stretch his neck and, and, and look up. So, so that there's almost a crick in his, in his neck as he, as he has to look up and up and up at this, at this vision of the highness, the greatness, the, the, the spatially distant God that he sees. There's a geological description of what he sees because he says, that the ground begins to shake. I've only, I've only experienced an earthquake one time, and it wasn't where you think it might have been. It actually was in my native country of Wales. It was, by measurements of earthquakes, a very small earthquake indeed, but enough to wake me up first thing in the morning and wonder what in the world was that? The the ground shaking beneath you. Now, you have maybe been in an earthquake or you've at least seen an earthquake in a news clip and the devastation that it causes. And I I can only imagine the sense of almost insecurity you know, when you're traveling, when you're flying, or when you've been on a, on a boat or something, there's something reassuring about putting your feet on terra firma, on, on, solid, on solid ground. Some of you know the experience when you've been uh, traveling, especially when you've been flying, that uh, for several hours, sometimes the night afterwards, you still feel as though you're flying. And, and here, is, here is Isaiah, and he's describing a vision of God. Actually, he's describing a vision of Jesus that he sees in the temple. And the ground shakes that makes him feel, as it were, almost insecure because of what is happening. He describes it in, in, a, in a way that that implies the sensations because he 
he tells us that the, 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 the temple was, was, was filled with this kind of suffocating smoke. It's, it's, not just, it's not just that the ground is shaking. It's not just that he has to crane his neck to look upwards, but the room of the temple is filled with this smoke that, that begins to choke and suffocate. The train of his robe fills the temple. There's, there's, there's no way that he can escape the, the intimidating nature of the presence of God. And then, and then he hears what is sometimes uh, referred to as the trisagion, the, the three holies. Holy, holy. Holy Lord, God of hosts, heaven and earth is, is full of your glory. This is a long, long way from I'm H-A-P-P-Y. This is a, this is a long, long way from the almost casual nature by which we sometimes come into the presence of God. There's every, every factor of his being, not just, not just his senses, but his, his very body is affected by what he sees and what he hears in the temple. He sees these six winged seraphs, one of the orders of angels. There are angels and archangels and there are cherubim and there are seraphim and there are elders and there are all kinds of things that that God has created that we haven't even begun to see or or fathom. But he sees these these seraphs and, and they're singing, holy, holy, Holy Lord God of hosts. You know, in all of the debates, and uh, there are lots of debates and uh, lots of heated debates about worship and what is worship. And I think that at least a part of the answer to that question is that worship must be defined by those who are constantly engaged in worship. And I think that the pattern of Earthly worship must be a pattern that is designed after the pattern of heavenly worship. And, and we're given glimpses in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 as to what heavenly worship actually looks like and what it sounds like. And, and here we're, we're, being given, we're being given a little glimpse of what seraphs do in the presence of God. And you must, you must remember here that these seraphs these seraphs are sinless beings. They've, they've never sinned. They've never, ever sinned. But they're singing the praise of the holiness of God. That's, that's what's coming out from their lips as, as, they, as they fly in the presence of God. John Stott uh, what turned out to be his final book just before he died, and he had a little chapter on worship, said some very sensible and sane things about, about worship. And he defines worship. He offers a little definition of worship. Actually, he's just citing a verse from Psalm 103, to glory in God's holy name. That's what worship is, to glory in God's Holy name. Isaiah sees and hears and feels something of the holiness of God and and it's intimidating. It is absolutely intimidating. There There is something about that which he sees that is altogether different from what he is. And the first response of Isaiah is, is, 
is to sense how different God is, how glorious God is, how great God is, how sovereign God is, how holy God is. Second thing that comes out in this passage, not only the holiness of God, but the judgment of God. Because the Hebrew word for holy can mean separatedness or, or distance, but, but it, can also, it can also be said to be derived from a verb meaning to burn, to, to burn. And, and the seraphs here, the, the seraphs, um, as, as, they, as they sing this, this trisagion, as they sing holy, 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 and this, and this smoke is, is, is filling this, this temple, these, these seraphs with two of their wings, they cover their eyes, they cover their faces. And with two wings, they, they cover their feet, by which I understand that in doing so, they're actually covering their bodies at the same time. They are blotting themselves out, even, even though they are not sinful creatures. Even, even though they are sinless creatures in the presence of this God, they must blot themselves out. So that God is the center of attraction. God is everything. Jesus is everything. You know, that's such a, that's such a terribly hard lesson to learn, isn't it? It's why we get into trouble all the time. It's why, we, it's why we get into trouble with the gospel all the time. Because we want to put ourselves in the center. It's what we were hearing this morning about a, a heart that condemns. Because we put ourselves in the center. Don't put yourself in the center. These, these seraphs are singing, are singing the holiness of God. All right, we're going to pause the lecture right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical store. Sound the alarm, you're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And be like, no. 
and roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You know, so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power responding, Chester. You know, so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies, they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Uh. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Do you find it hard to shop for the geek in your life? Well, if so, we have got a fantastic new featured advertiser for you to visit. It's Think Geek. This is a well-thought-out and hilarious gift store. And what you need to do is visit our website first, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek, and then click on the ad banner, and then a portion of your purchase will actually go to support Pirate Christian Radio. Trust me, these gifts are hilarious, from wacky office gifts to Star Trek paraphernalia to Star Wars stuff, anything that would really kind of light up the life of the geek in your life. Trust me, you'll love it. They're smart funny and the geek in your life will really enjoy them again piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek all right we're back Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Especially if they're not preaching the gospel. They don't understand God's holiness, our need for a savior, things like that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend, absolutely depend. It's critical, it's vital, it's all that stuff. We depend upon you in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us a few ways. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Right there in the center of the homepage, you'll see our famous two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month month to the ongoing work and mission of fighting for the faith in pirate christian radio and if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to fighting for the faith and then send that to post office box 508 fishers indiana zip code 46038 thank you for your support we cannot do what we do without it all right, here is the balance of today's lecture regarding the, uh, the basics of the gospel and a holy God. Here we go. Now, Isaiah sees this vision in chapter 6. It's not in chapter 1. It's in chapter 6. He's already a prophet. This is not, uh, this is not Isaiah's conversion. This is not uh, Isaiah's testimony of how he, how he comes to saving faith in the Lord. This is, this is something that happens to Isaiah in the course of his ministry. The, the gospel isn't something that we discover once and, and then forget about. It's something that we need to learn and relearn. And there are, there are moments, I think, there are, there are seasons in our life when we need to go back and relearn the parameters of the gospel. 
We, we really do need at seasons of our life to go and relearn the parameters of the gospel. Isaiah's been in ministry. And what kind of ministry is he in? Perhaps you remember the first chapter of Isaiah and it's, um, it's a scary chapter. It's scary because it describes so much of Christianity in 2012. Because Isaiah is reflecting upon what we would call perhaps today the nominalism, the, the outward performance of religion where the heart is almost completely and totally absent. They're doing certain things, they're performing certain things, they're going through acts and rituals and ceremonies, but their heart is far from God. That's That's the first chapter of Isaiah. And perhaps, and I'm conjecturing now, I'm I'm just conjecturing perhaps perhaps the effect of that on, on a prophet, on a preacher of the Old Testament, because that's essentially what he was. The effect of preaching to that nominalism again and again and again has 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 stunted him. Has, has caused calluses to grow upon his heart and perhaps a, a cynicism to grow upon his heart. And he's being reminded here. He's being reminded of the centrality of God, that God is in charge here. How will judgment, how will this judgment come? Actually, in that second half of chapter 6, it's uh, when God says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah replies, His heart now filled with gospel truth. Here am I, send me. And what is it that he must preach? Go on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. It's actually a word of judgment that the thing in which they trusted the most, the outward ceremony, the outward ritual, that would be the very means of the hardening of their hearts. They begin to trust in the outward ceremony. The holiness of God brings a word of judgment, but it, begin, it, it brings a word of judgment that is, that is actually initially very personal. Do you notice the response of the prophet to this vision? He says, uh, I am lost or I am undone in verse 5, for I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He's a prophet. He's a preacher of the gospel, but he's coming once again before the presence of a holy God. And what is What is his immediate response? And his immediate response is, I am unworthy. I am utterly and completely unworthy. I have have unclean lips. Now, if if you had heard if you had heard Isaiah preach, and, and I think he was a great preacher. I think he was one of those great preachers. You would have said he had the cleanest lips in Jerusalem. He had the cleanest lips in Israel. But when he comes before the presence of the holiness of God, the the burning holiness of God, that holiness which cannot look upon sin, it cannot be in the presence of sin, It is repulsed by sin. It must judge that sin. It must separate from that sin. Isaiah says, 
I'm undone. I'm undone. Actually, it's, it's a very strong word, as, as though he's saying, I'm, I'm coming apart at the seams. I'm, I'm disintegrating in the presence of God's holiness. We were thinking about that a little this morning. If I can, if I can bridge the two sermons for a second or two. The, the condemning the condemning heart. The, the, the believer, this is, this is a believer. This is somebody who believes, who trusts. But he's being, he's, being, he's being forced in this encounter with the holiness of God to reckon on his own unworthiness. I'm unworthy. I have unclean lips. The word of God, the presence of God, the holiness of God comes and it comes initially as a word of judgment. It says, I cannot stand in his presence. I cannot cannot be in his presence. I'm I'm not worthy to be in his presence. And it's right, it's actually right here as the holiness of God and the judgment of God come to bear upon the very heart and the very soul of Isaiah himself that something of the revelation of the grace of God, actually the grace of God in the gospel comes to him. And it comes to him in the form, in the visual form that he would have known in that period of redemptive history in which he lived. One of the seraphs comes with a pair of tongues, with a live coal from the altar. You understand the altar is the place in the temple where where sacrifice is offered, where blood is shed, where atonement is made, where the holiness of God, the wrath of God, which is the reflex of God's holiness towards sin, where the wrath of God is propitiated. And he brings that live coal and I, I can't imagine it. Touches his lips. And and the words that he that he hears, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. What's the remedy for a condemning heart? What's the remedy for a sense of guilt in the presence of God? It is to flee to that source of atonement and grace that God offers in the gospel. It's the sacrifice, that sacrifice that is made upon the altar. Now, of course, this is, this is within the confines of the redemptive period of the Old Testament And you understand that the New Testament makes this abundantly clear, that the the one whom Isaiah saw, the, the holy Jesus, the holy Jesus, the the sinless Jesus, he is the one. He himself is the one who will lay down his life as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. And his blood, his blood cleanses from all sin and all guilt and atones, makes us right with God. It justifies so that we can stand in the presence of a holy God, an absolutely thrice holy God, without any condemnation without fear of condemnation and stand acquitted and stand absolved in the presence of this God. You know, Luther once said, I feel as though I have begun to be dissolved in the presence of God. He wrote that as a believer. He wrote that not just, he's not just describing that period in which he was under conviction, but he hadn't yet understood 
the, the gospel. He hadn't yet understood the, the, the way of forgiveness. He, he wrote that as a believer. There have been some significant moments in my Christian life, and I've been a Christian for 40 years, but there have been some significant moments when I think, I think speaking untheologically, I would have said, I've been converted all over again. Now, that's, that's, that's untheological talk. But what I, what I want to say to you is that the gospel has come home with, with fresh power, with a, with a renewed realization of what it actually does. It frees me from my guilt. It atones for my sin. It renders me by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. I stand in the holiness, in the holy presence of God as one who has never sinned. As one who is a law keeper. As one who has kept the covenant of God. That's the marvel of it. That's the beauty of it. That's the grace of it. But right here in the midst of his ministry, in the midst of his ministry, a difficult ministry, a terribly difficult ministry, a ministry that he was actually given insight into the fact that it wouldn't be that successful in earthly terms. He had to, he had to endure the knowledge that his ministry would never be viewed as successful in the, in the way the, the world judges success. Or for that matter, in the way the modern church would judge success. But in the faithfulness to which God calls him in his ministry, God comes to him and he renews in his heart a sense of what the gospel is all about. It's about about that atonement that comes from the altar. I I may be coming apart. I may be unhinged. I may be lost, as Isaiah says. I may be weighed down with the, with the guilt of who I am and, and what I'm capable of doing. And God comes and he says, in Jesus Christ, I forgive you. I cleanse you. I wash you. Though your sins be red like crimson, they they are as white as snow. I, I, I remove them, as we were hearing this morning, I remove them as far as the east is from the west, never to remember them no more, forever. He comes and he says to us, you're my child. You're my adopted child. You are, you are part of my family. He comes and he wraps his arms around us. He shows us mercy. Now there's there's more here in Isaiah 6. Not just mercy to Isaiah, but mercy to a remnant seed. Judgment will come and judgment will come in the form of Assyria. And perhaps he's also thinking of the eventual coming of the Babylonians. But God will be true to his word. And he will be true to the promise that he has made. Now let me say, let me say a couple of things. Just a couple of things here by way of, by way of a closing comment or two. There is, there is no fellowship and there is no continued fellowship. There is no continued fellowship apart from this atonement. This atonement that is spoken of here, this this holiness that is appeased, this holiness that is propitiated by by the sacrifice that is offered upon the altar. And and I think Isaiah is being reminded of something that he surely, surely knew. He surely knew that. He surely understood what the sacrificial system of the Old Testament did. And yet if we ask ourselves tonight, 
Do you understand what Calvary does? Do you understand what the shedding of the blood of Jesus does for you? When you get up in the morning, when you go about your daily work, when you go to bed at night, it's as though this passage is saying, preach this gospel, preach this truth to yourself. Now, now do you notice, do you notice what this passage does is not to dilute the holiness of God. A holiness that can only be propitiated by the blood of his son. Nothing else can propitiate this holiness of God. There's no fellowship apart from this atonement. But I think too, the second thing I want us to see is that this is a This is a, let me put it this way, this is a post-conversion experience of the ongoing reality of what the gospel can do in the life of a believer. It's a post-conversion, and I don't mean by that that it's just a one-time thing. But it's something I think that God can do again and again and again. To to come to the reality of who God is. And to come clutching in the name and the merits of his only son and our savior Jesus Christ. Chuck Colson, who was... uh, perhaps the hatchet man for President Nixon in the 1970s, and you remember how he was famously converted in prison. And later on, he describes a period in his life where he was passing through a a dry valley. And if you're passing through a dry valley in your Christian experience, you are not alone. And many, many Christians have passed through dry valleys, and you just have to read the Psalms of the way in which the psalmist often passed through dry valleys. And Chuck Colson looked for help so that he could emerge from this dry valley, and somebody said to him, you need, you need to listen to R.C. Sproul's lectures on the holiness of God. Several lectures, six, seven, eight, nine, ten lectures on the holiness, holiness of God. And he wasn't initially infused at the thought of listening to a theologian give lectures on the holiness of God. But he tells us in his biography that when he came to about the sixth lecture on the holiness of God by Dr. Sproul, he fell upon his knees. And something, something of the reality and something of the freshness and something of the beauty of the gospel came back to him again. But it came to him through a consideration of the holiness of God. A holiness that required, that absolutely required the kind of death that Jesus died in order that sinners like you and me would be atoned for. Well, getting the gospel right then involves coming to terms once again, not just with the contours of the character of God, namely his holiness, but also the provision that God makes of the wonder of his atoning love and the gift of his Son, And whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, we thank you. Thank you from the depths of our hearts that in moments when we have found ourselves uh, almost undone because of the realization of our own wretched sinfulness and our proclivity to wander from you. We thank you for the way in which that live coal 
comes and touches us at the very point where we feel our sinfulness the most and says to us that guilt is forgiven and gone and and purged and that sin is atoned for, that we may stand in your presence as your children, forgiven, ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. So hear us, Lord, bless us, write these truths upon our hearts. For Jesus' sake, we ask it. Amen. Amen. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.